Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another stabby snippet here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I am joined with my ghoul friend Jessica. Hello. Hello. And today I am bringing you the murder case of Heidi Bernazakowski. And this case was described by the judge as, quote, one of the most cold-blooded, heartless, manipulative, despicable crimes that he's ever seen in his almost 30 years of law. Ooh. Yes, it's got layers today, guys. We got layers. <laughs> it's the onion. <laughs> So our story is going to take place in a suburb of Baltimore, and Heidi was born on December 21st in 1975. She had four brothers. She was the only girl. And growing up, she was described as a loving, caring person who would do absolutely anything for anybody. She was optimistic. She trusted people and just tried to believe the best in everyone. Glass half full kind of person. And she loved animals, her favorites being cats, dogs, and horses. After high school, she moved into her own place and got a job as a receptionist. And she also picked up a new hobby. She started playing pool, which is like a not a common hobby. It isn't. That's cool. That's cool. It's fun to play every once in a while. And while out one night, she would meet a man named Stephen Cook. And it was said that their connection was instant. They began dating shortly after they met. And actually, just a couple months into their relationship, they moved in together. And Stephen, he worked in the plumbing department at a local Lowe's. Stephen described their relationship as happy and going really great. They were excited for the future. They were planning on getting married in Las Vegas, and they had talked about having children. Things would take a turn on April 20th of 2000. 24-year-old Heidi and Stephen were out and about, and she had been dropped off at home at 5.30 that evening because she had to go to the bathroom, and Stephen really didn't want to wait around for her. I don't know what the bathroom situation was, but okay. He had a few errands to run, so he's just like, I'm going to just leave you at home and go. While out, he did a bunch of stuff. He got his oil changed. He went and got a haircut. He made a trip over to Home Depot, which when I read that, I was like, unless it was a distance thing, why wouldn't you just go to Lowe's if you work there? But okay. And then went over to his sister's to fix her plumbing. She had some issues going on. And then he came home. When he walked in, he saw Heidi on the ground with her neck slit and she was covered in blood. Holy crap. 
I know. He then called 911, and on the call, he was extremely distraught and crying and, you know, all of those reactions you would expect because, you know, he just found his girlfriend in this state. Right. Police get there, and he's covered in blood because he was, like, holding slash cradling her body at this point and crying and, you know, all of that. But Heidi was already gone. Right off the bat, they notice something weird. They notice that there is a number one, the hashtag sign, and then literally the number one, written on the wall in lipstick. So instantly they're like, what the fuck? What does that mean? Is that like a message or is this going to be something worse like a serial killer marking Heidi as the first victim? Like their wheels start turning. They process the crime scene and they look through the house and everything is a little disheveled. Things are pulled down, drawers are open, things like that. But nothing is taken, which is odd and makes them think, was this part of the crime staged? That makes sense. And they also noted that the living room she was in was unusually empty, like there was a chair there and nothing else. So they were just like, okay, that's kind of weird. So they just pocketed that and moved on with processing everything. And Heidi's body was taken to the medical examiner for an autopsy. And with that examination, it's confirmed that her cause of death was from the combination of being strangled and then the slit on her throat. They collected some nail clippings to check for DNA, but honestly, it's the year 2000, so there's not a lot of technology. So nothing really happened with it at this point. It was just kind of like in an evidence locker. So, of course, authorities want to talk to Stephen. They always look at the significant other first. And they take him in for an interview, and he tells him everything I told you all a minute ago about, like, what he was out doing and providing the paper trail because he's got receipts. There's security camera footage that they can get to confirm he's really at the timestamps at these places. And then, like I said, he was at his sister's house at one point, so there's that. One thing they did find as a red flag was that the couple had recently both taken out life insurance policies. And there was one for Stephen for $900,000 and one for Heidi for $700,000. And authorities thought, what the hell, that's a lot. And according to them, they thought that these were like unusually high due to their, quote, lifestyle and economic status, just because like there was nothing wrong with how they lived, but they had modest lives. So they were like, wow, kind of surprised. And Stephen countered this with saying that with all their future plans and that he took out his originally so high because when they did have kids, you know, if something happened to him, he wanted Heidi and them to be taken care of. That makes sense. It does. It does. And he said that when he did his, Heidi asked him if they could take one out on her as well. And he, of course, he's like, yes. So authorities chatted with the insurance agent that set them up with the policies and they were like, yes, they seemed like, you know, just a normal couple. They were just young and prepping for their future. Nothing out of the ordinary on their end. So detectives are like, "Okay, fine. So Sergeant Alan Meyer and Detective Gary Childs are the two who are like heading up this investigation. And like I said, they're just like, okay. So they pocket it because they're like, all right, nothing seems sketch, but you never know kind of thing. And I will say, Sergeant Meyer, he, like, throughout this whole thing, he definitely pushes 
to try to find justice and find answers for Heidi. So, you know, it's always nice to see that, you know. Right. And while they were talking, Stephen does mention some weird things that happened leading to the day of her murder. He tells them of an account Heidi told him, and she also told this to her coworkers and friends, and they confirmed they're like, yes, she really said this, was that one day she was home alone and she was chatting on the phone with one of her friends when a man came to the door that she didn't recognize. And when she answered it, he said he was trying to head up a neighborhood watch type of thing and wanted to get her to see if she wanted to participate. And she said she didn't recognize him at all and also that she got weird vibes from him. Something just seemed off. So she's like, no, thank you, and shut the door and, you know, all that. And he left. And Heidi described him as a, quote, larger, light-skinned black male or a dark-skinned, maybe Mediterranean white male with black hair and that he had a tattoo on his left arm, end quote. And I couldn't find anything on what the tattoo looked like or what it was, but it said it was very unique and she had actually drawn it out while she remembered it. So that way, like, other people knew in case this guy was lurking about type of thing. So then flash forward to the day before she was murdered. So April 19th of 2000. Stephen and Heidi, they've been out and about. And once they get home, they notice something weird with their back door. When they went to check it out, they noticed there was scratches and marks on the door in the frame to indicate somebody was messing with it, like trying to mess with the lock, like with perhaps like a screwdriver or something or some kind of sharper tool. And and they're like, what the fuck? So Stephen rushes over to the landlords and he's like, you need to change these locks today because we don't know if anyone's gotten in our house and it looks like what's on here can, you know, be messed with easy and that makes us uncomfortable type of thing. So they're like, okay. So they change the locks and authorities take note of both of these two events. Now, when they're looking through potential leads and suspects and all that stuff, they come across this guy named Terry Gillum, and he was a butcher at a local Safeway, and he was actually friends with Stephen's sister, so kind of a connection a little bit. And Terry had actually been arrested for something unrelated to this, but since he was there at the jail, they were like, let's just go talk to him because he's already fucking here. When I was reading about, like, why they kind of focused on him for a minute, it was basically like, oh, he's a butcher, so he knows how to use knives because, you know, her throat was slashed, so it could have possibly been him, which is kind of far-fetched and reaching. Who doesn't understand the concept of having your throat slashed? Right, exactly. But that's a reach. But the other thing that really kind of set off the radar for Sergeant Meyer was after they talked and stuff, like when he was looking at the dude's time card, because he's like, oh, I was at work or whatever. He noticed there was something off with his time card. He said, quote, it's all digitized, you know, computerized printout. The day of the 20th, the day of the murder, it's handwritten and it's actually handwritten over again. So I think, okay, I might have my guy, end quote. But there was just some kind of like tech issue. It wasn't like anything sketch and he just pretended to come to work and wrote it in kind of thing. I could understand them wanting to make sure that it's legit. I get that. But unfortunately, that went nowhere. He was not the killer and he was cleared from that. So <laughs> moving on from him. I always like the weird leaps that cops are like trying to take. And I mean... I feel like there's always that one person in, in a case that's like, just shit isn't lining up for them. But they're like, I swear I'm innocent. It's just this particular day. I had a case of the Mondays, you know? Literally. Oh, But then sadly, from here, the case would actually go cold for 11 years. It's a long time. Right? 
So in 2011, authorities, which did include Sergeant Meyer, were relooking at cold cases, and this one was included. And they remembered at this point, you know, we have the nail clippings. So obviously, in over a decade, technologies had leaps and bounds. So they have a bit more resources than they did in 2000. So they send it out for analysis to see what comes up. And it comes back with a combination of Heidi's DNA and an unidentified male. So they take that and run it through the database, you know, to see if they get a hit. No, it's not Stephen, for those wondering. But it came back of a man named Alexander Bennett, and he was located in Colorado. This took place in Maryland. So they're like, what the hell? (laughs) Because uh, that's a bit of a trek. That's a bit of a trek. But it's also like 11 years. Yes. So they're like, okay, because he lived like in the Denver area. So they call up like Denver police or whatever. And they're like, hey, we are investigating a cold case. We got a hit on some DNA and it brought up Alex, et cetera, et cetera. And the ladies just kind of talk to him and he's like, well, can you like let me know what he looks like? And the woman describes him the same exact way that Heidi described the dude that was in her neighborhood almost verbatim. And they're like, what the fuck? That's really weird. And he's like, okay, okay. He's like, just tell me this. Does he have such and such tattoo on his left arm? And she says, yes. And they're like, oh shit, this might be our guy. So they go out to Colorado to meet up with Alex, and he's not what they expected at all. Alex is actually a classically trained opera singer. He went to college at the Denver School of Arts, and he also had a scholarship to the Manhattan School of Music. So they talked to him and they asked him if he was in Maryland, you know, near Baltimore back in 2000. And he's like, yeah, I actually was. He had said he went back east with some friends to go to a concert and they actually ended up dipping out on him. And he's like, I basically became homeless and was like living on the streets for about a month before I came back. And he said, I was driving somewhere I shouldn't have been, like some kind of tunnel or something. I don't know if it was like a closed street, wrong way. I don't know what the situation was that he was trying to say. He's like, I got pulled over. So that like I dinged there, that kind of shit. Mm hmm. And authorities are like, okay, well, weird. We have your DNA that's popped up in like a case we're relooking at. And he's like, oh, I might have an explanation for that too, actually. He says that one day he was at a bus station and this woman just came out of nowhere and ran up to him screaming and started like clawing at him. And then like when she did that, it like scratched his face or something. So he fought her off and he said, quote, I got kind of scared because I was trying to fight back and I think I hurt her, end quote. And police are like, "Okay, well, do you mind looking at this photo lineup we brought with us to ID to see if that's the same woman? And of course, he IDs Heidi from the woman from his story. So they go on for a bit longer and then Alex is kind of like, well, am I being charged with anything or can I go? Like, what's the deal? And they're like, no, we're not. So like, you can go. So he leaves. And as he's leaving, he says, if you want, I have someone who can give a character witness for me. His name is Grant Lewis. And the police are like, great, we'll look him up and we'll have a chat with him, whatever. Which uh, was really easy because Grant had an active warrant out. They were already looking for him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And let me preface as well. I don't know why Alex thought saying that Grant could be a character witness was a good idea because it was not. They actually had both been arrested for calling in a phony bomb threat to a courthouse there in Colorado. 
and they were going to pin it on Alex's roommate so they could steal slash use the roommate's car while the dude was in prison. I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Like this kind of like thought process, like I have the plan. I mean, they had to be fucking stoned. Like there's no, <laughs> like there's no way around that. Who knows? Because it literally had to be like, dude, I got it. We'll call in a bomb threat to the courthouse. And then when they come here, we'll say he did it. <laughs> and then he's just going to deny. I mean, like it's kind of, it's like he's going to deny it. Right. But like he did it. <laughs> And we'll get to drive his car. And then you know what would happen? Like a parent would have swooped in and taken the car. Right, exactly. God. Love it. With that fun tidbit, they get Grant to come in to talk to him and all that shit. So Grant's like, when Alex came back to Colorado, he was acting weird. So I told him, like, let's go out for drinks and hang out, whatever, and catch up. And so they do. And he says that Alex told him, quote, I hurt someone bad. And I looked over at him and I said, I don't want to know. And he said, I think someone's dead. And I knife someone, end quote. So his character witness basically was like, oh, my God, no, he committed murder. Ratted him out. Alex, bud, this is the guy that you guys came up with the plan of pinning the fake bombing. Bro, it's going to get better. Just fucking wait. Oh, I'm so excited. There's layers. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. So police are obviously like, oh, shit. And then, you know, Alex gets arrested. Well, flash forward to a couple years later. It's about 2013 now, right? What was so frustrating with this is there's not I had to like scour the Internet for this. So like there wasn't specific dates on like all the trials and stuff. So I'm just giving you kind of like general years time frame. So apologize, apologize, because like on YouTube, there was like two things. That's it, which is really sad. Makes me really sad for her. So, okay, 2013, they're going to do jury selection for Alex's trial. And Grant is actually with Myers and Childs, the two officers, getting coffee because they were going to take him to the courthouse because he was the prosecution star witness. He was going to testify against Alex for this, right? Makes sense. Literally 10 minutes before this, Alex's defense attorney calls them and is like, hey, uh, so Alex is willing to tell y'all what happened if you give him a plea deal. And so they're like, okay, all right, because, you know, that is helpful. So they're like, hey, Grant, we got to take you back to your uh, hotel or wherever the fuck and we'll come get you. Like, well, we got to do something like there's stuff going on. So they take him back, get rid of him. Then they go with Alex. And apparently Alex has had a life changing conversation with his mother. And she basically told him that if you tell the authorities the truth and get that out there and own up to what you did, God will forgive you for whatever you've done. So it's a literal come to Jesus moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how that works. You don't just tell the police, I killed someone. And then Jesus is like, I forgive you. Kind of have to ask forgiveness from Jesus, but also from your victim. Yeah. So they're like, great, let's meet up. Let's let's do this. So Alex tells them all the details, how the day of the murder happened. He said he went to the house and when he started to go at her to attack her, she instantly tried to fight back and tried to fight him off. And as soon as he was like within reach, she scratched his face. So that's how the DNA ended up there because he said it like it was his face and his lip and it got him pretty good. And from there, he said that he started to strangle her until she was starting to pass out, like going in and out of consciousness. And once this happened, you know, she's like weakened and whatnot. He pulls her in. So like her back is to him, like pulls her in close to him and keeps strangling her until she went completely limp. 
And at this point, then he like drops her down on the ground. And from here, he went around to dishevel the house like they found it. And along with that, he grabs a rag from the house and he starts wiping all the doorknobs and anything he might have touched with bare hands and things like that to cover that he was there. After this, he took a knife. It didn't specify if it was from the house or if he had it on him. That is when he slit her throat and he said he did this because he wasn't sure if she was still alive and had to make sure she was dead. From there, that's when he wrote the number one on the wall with her lipstick and he said he did this to throw police off into thinking it was a serial killer and not a random murderer one-off thing. So he would be, you know, off the radar and they'd be distracted. And guess what? That's exactly what happened in the beginning. Police are obviously floored that they're getting all of these details and everything and they're like, holy fucking shit. And they're like, okay, now that we walked through this, why? What was the motive? Like, why would you do this? Because we don't see any connection here. He says, remember my friend Grant, the one y'all got for your star witness? Well, he and I were running this scam business and put out an ad online saying we were available for hitman services. So you need to talk to him. They are like, okay, they do whatever, put him in a cell, whatever. And they get Grant and they're like, hey, good news. You don't have to testify anymore. But uh, bad news. We know you're all up in this shit. I like that. It just keeps flip-flopping for these two dudes. It's like, who's in trouble today? Yeah. At first he tries to be like, what? And then he's like, uh, no, I'm not going to say anything without a deal. And But they're like, fuck you, dude. So that goes nowhere. He gets no deal. And I don't know. He just eventually is like, all right, I guess I'll tell you guys. So he, he tells them the rest of the story. So here's what happens. He said that, yes, they set up an ad somewhere online in the dark web, scary places I don't want to be, to be hitmen. And he said, obviously, the ad, they had to be like careful with the wording and whatnot. So it wasn't completely obvious, but obvious to the right people, quote, quote, that they're targeting. The ad read, quote, professional and discreet house cleaning, end quote. So the scam, because you're like, okay, where's the scam part? Because they're saying they're going to kill people. Well, that's the scam. Because according to Grant, he said that they would ask for some money up front, you know, like a deposit from the clients. And once they got it, they wouldn't actually kill anybody. That as soon as they got the money, they'd go turn the clients in. So no one got hurt, but that they got paid, which I'm like, uh, wouldn't the authorities take that money because it'd be like evidence, essentially? Like, I don't think they're going to let you keep it. They're not smart. They're thinkers, as we already know with this, yeah, with this courthouse car thing. We already know they're thinkers. So there's that. So anyways, they get an inquiry. So Alex is the one who's supposed to go talk to this client. And this is when Grant says Alex went rogue, quote, quote, and decided to actually go through with the killing. And he said he met up with the client and they said that they would give the pair 5K before and they would get the rest after. But that it needed to look like an accident because they were relying on the life insurance money for the payout. So I'm guessing you can guess who this client is. Steven. Yes, it's the boyfriend. It's Steven. So at this point, authorities give Alex another photo lineup. And at first, he's got it down to like two people. And so he gets a better look at these two. And he's like, oh, wait, that's the boyfriend. That's him. 
and is Stephen. So when authorities are getting their surveillance on him, because you know it's been over a decade, obviously he's doing other stuff with his life. Heidi's friends and family are interviewed and whatnot again, and they admit that the relationship was not all sunshine and rainbows like Stephen was trying to say, that there was no future there at all. In fact, Heidi had actually been saving up money and had just gotten a storage unit for her things because she was literally about to break up with him and move out. Why wouldn't they have said this fucking 13 years ago? That's the thing I thought was so weird. And then when I was watching this other thing, they were trying to be like, oh, family and them were suspicious. And that's like all they said. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, it just seems strange to me that I feel like they would have taken that seriously if the authorities had been told that back then. I'm also going to do the devil's advocate side of this is like, maybe they knew that she was going to break up with him. But then like, she's killed and he's like traumatized and is like distraught and they can't be like, well, she was going to leave his ass. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So like I said, that all happens and they track down Steven. And at this point, he's married. He has some kids and he actually has a job with the VA, which is Veteran Affairs. It's a government job. And a uh, fun fact, he didn't get all of the insurance policy like he thought. It ranged when I was looking up how much he got. It ranged from like 20 percent max. And some were saying like very, very small percents, even less than that. So her family got majority of it. Obviously, I'm assuming because they weren't married and stuff and who knows how it was set up. When Thomas and I were dating before we were married, when I set up my life insurance policy through my work, the company that we had the policy through recommended that I put a family member on there as the larger beneficiary. Yeah, that makes sense. In case he killed me. Because these things happen. That's kind of what they said. They were like, we recommend doing this. And then if you really want everything to go to him, have a will and put it in the will that he would get all the money. It totally makes sense because I dealt with like life insurance stuff. So I get it. Yeah. Bo was getting most of it. (laughs) (laughs) It was Bo and Thomas. Yeah. So the day comes, they're going to go arrest him, and they follow him as he's dropping his son off at school, and as soon as Stephen is off of the school property, they cuff him. And of course, once he's in custody, he's maintaining his innocence, saying he had no clue what they were talking about, he did not hire a hitman, he didn't do any of this, blah, blah, blah. Well... Apparently, over the next couple days, he becomes rather chummy with his cellmate because not only does he tell his cellmate, yes, I did do this, but then he offers to him that he'll pay him if he will, quote, whack Grant since he's in the same facility as they are. Mm, Dude, have we not learned anything about hiring suspecty hitmen? No. Well, the cellmate's like, uh, excuse me, uh, you know, COs and police people, can I tell you something? And so he tells them that this fucking happened. So they're like, oh, fuck, will you work with us? And he's like, yes. So they put a wire on him and they get everything on recording from Stephen. So he just keeping on and on and on. So they're like, all right, this is sealed. And obviously, not only is he going to be facing charges with Heidi's case, but then he has additional charges with Grant now, too. So brings us to some time later. So in 2015, ugh. God, I want to smack the defense. And I hate that his defense attorney is named Tara, too. I'm like, fuck you. No. Goodbye. Oh, it's always the suckiest part of life when someone has your name and you're like, "Mm, 
why you gotta be an asshole? Right? Well, like, and plus, my name's a lot less common than, like, your name. So I'm like, what the fuck? It's true. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, like, everyone has my name. People, like, in my, my age who weren't named, like, Ashley, Brittany, or Jessica just don't fucking understand. There would be, like, four Ashleys in my class and, like, four Jessicas. And I'd be like, was there any other name? None. <laughs> but yeah, and she even spells it the same way, too. I was like, what the fuck? So first of all, first of all, she's like, well, when they're, like, in court, and obviously I'm paraphrasing big time. She's like, well, y'all didn't check into the computer, so you don't have any paper trail or uh, you can't provide a contract that he did with this hitman. So uh, it's bullshit. And they're like, the fuck? And they're pretty much like, uh, okay, they weren't really concerned with computers so much back then like they would be now because that's basically what she's trying to compare it to. And they're like, the fuck? That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. But also, this is like hiring a hitman. Why the fuck would you write a contract for that shit? Exactly, right? Like I, Steven, say to give Alex and Grant $5,000 and then they kill Heidi and then I give them the rest. Like, no, it doesn't fucking work that way. What the fuck is wrong with you? Anyway, this other part pissed me the fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) No, this next thing pissed me off. So that's whatever. That's whatever. You're all probably like, Tara, quit overreacting. Yes, it ain't about that, though. She says, and they present, that Heidi's murder was her own fault because she met Alex in a chat room online and they became online lovers and were having this affair. And once he came there to meet her, she rejected him. And then that's why he killed her. Can we not victim blame? Go fuck yourself, first of all. Okay, I have a question, which you're probably going to say in a second. This didn't happen. They didn't have the chats. They couldn't find that on the on the internet. No. So basically their logic is they were chatting online, so there would be this history of it, but... There's nothing. There's nothing. This didn't happen. They didn't know each other. He, Alex is like, I didn't know her. I killed her, but I didn't know her. I knew him. He handed me money. I killed his girlfriend. Oh, oh, oh. No, no, no. Here's the thing. He never actually even paid them. Bad decision making skills. Yeah. Alex, stupid. It's ridiculous. I don't know who's the bigger idiot in all of this. Alex or Steven. Grant, I just think Grant is just high. And along for the ride. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. But obviously, like I said, no proof. They did not have an affair. None of none of that was true. So you're like discredited, debunked, whatever you want to say. So we're all done with that. And the jury deliberates for a day and a half. And then on June 15th of 2015, they come back to find all three men guilty. Stephen would be guilty of first-degree murder, witness intimidation, and attempted murder with life in prison without the possibility of parole. Good for Stephen. Alex would be found guilty of first-degree murder. And since he did the plea deal, he was actually given 30 years instead of life in prison and the possibility of a three-year parole. A three-year parole? Yeah. Oh, no. And then Grant was found guilty on like conspiracy to commit murder Mm because he obviously helped with like the hitman stuff and he was given life in prison why the fuck did the person who actually committed the murder get like the least sentence i don't get it because he took a plea deal it is it is and then it's like after 
I was looking in this, it was just like, because I was talking to Matt about it. I was like, man, these fucking cases make me so mad. I know they do you too. Because it's like, was it he did know they were going to break up? And it's that whole, if I can't have you, no one can. So he wanted her to die. Like there was no obvious debt or anything like that. Like a, a motivator we see a lot. Right. So it's just, ugh, I hate it. And there was like no history of violence or anything like that. So it's just, it's really strange and it's really heartbreaking. And my heart goes out to her family and her brothers and everything. I mean, he had to have known on some level that the relationship was ending. Yeah. And I don't know, like this concept of killing people to end a relationship. I hate my husband because he cheated on me. That's not a real thing, but you know what I'm saying? Like Betty Broderick. Yeah. Yeah. Like I hate him because he cheated on me and remarried and I'm unhappy. So I shot and killed him in his bedroom and I killed his new wife. Yeah. That's the Betty Broderick story. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't understand that because just leave. Just fucking walk out the door. There's so many other possibilities out there where if you're with someone who isn't right for you and then shit happens and you are breaking up and you're like, I love you so much. I can't live without you. Then just like go find someone else to love or at least go find someone else to have sex with for a while until your endorphins like even out. Literally go hate fuck somebody and get the fuck over it. Jesus Christ. Exactly. They weren't married. They had no kids. You know, it was like nothing like that. So it's like literally Mm -hmm. it was just a breakup. I mean, I know that still hurts and everything. I get it. I've been there. Right. I'm just saying like, you know, people who are crazy are like they think in their crazy state like murder would be easier than divorce. Really? Is it though? Is it though? No, it's not. I hate it. I hate it so much. Heidi was so young. She was 24 and just seems like a great person from everything I was reading from her family and her friends and stuff. I know. And it always kind of just breaks my heart, too, when cases like this just doesn't get out. Like, cases don't get out there sometimes, you know? I hate that for the families and stuff, like, that need it because it was cold for 11 years. If it had had some media attention, who knows, you know? Also, I think it was, like, DNA cold. In 2000, the limited resources they had, and then all of a sudden, in 11 years, they had this massive glow up with technology, and they were able to, like, pinpoint the person. And I mean, like, let's think about this. There are cases out there that they have the technology to solve them, but they just don't get solved because there's not enough manpower or... Someone isn't sitting like a detective or an investigator isn't sitting there going, this case deserves attention. And that's that's really sad. I've been rewatching Bones lately. And an episode I watched today kind of rings true here is like there are literally warehouses full of case files of unsolved crimes and nobody is looking into them because they have to like crimes keep happening. And it's, like, really sad, but, like, obviously, like, you can't be chasing down, like, a 20-year-old case and have the crime that just happened go uninvestigated. Yeah, it's tough all around, but at least we are starting to see justice for ones that can be worked and stuff. Like, because technology, like, even from then to now is just amazing because I feel like in the last year or two, we've seen so many, like, 40-year-old cold case, 50-year-old cold case, like, salt, DNA. Like, it makes me so fucking happy for those families, you know? Well, it's because, like, okay, like, let's be honest, like, the Golden State Killer got caught. They caught D'Angelo and people were like, department 
departments, I mean, it's kind of like departments are wanting their like 15 minutes of fame, which is fantastic because they're getting these cases that are so unsolved and couldn't solve and they're doing the same technology. And honestly, like when I went to do the ancestor.com, people were like, well, are you afraid? I'm like, no. But if one of my family members committed a murder and they have their DNA on file and I can help be like, it's not fucking me, but like, let me point you in the direction of some family member of mine. I don't care. Like (laughs) if a family member of mine committed a murder and I found out about it, I would be like... Let me introduce you to the police officers. A hundred percent. It's just, it blows my mind. One, it blows my mind. All of these people out there like, I never had any idea he killed. It's kind of scary. This case sounds like Alex and Grant were just like these two kind of like idiot savant guys, at least Alex, and just like didn't really know what to do. And it was like, if a good decision and a bad decision came up to them, they were like, let's do the bad decision. Yeah, it's just like crazy. I I'd never heard of this case before. And when I was reading it, I was just like, it cannot get any more like, what the hell? And it just did and did and did. So right. we've been doing a lot of kind of well-known heavy hitters lately. So I really made the effort to find one that was very much less known and one I, that was new to me as well. So yeah, so that is going to conclude the case for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. Next week, we will be back in Casey Anthony Town, and we will have parts three and four for you for Christmas week. So we'll see you then. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) 